that $100 per cold call per meeting I set got me the engagement ring with my wife. It paid the rent for my apartment. And it allowed me to go to weddings of my buddies that were doing much better than I was. But on the flip side, we sold a company and, and it was a very, very amazing, lucky, lucky story. So it's, it all balances out. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Jody Sean, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Scott Havens. Scott earned a degree in strategic communications from the University of Kansas after spending much of his college career in several entrepreneurial ventures, including running a bartending service business. He is now an executive and the youngest stockholder of Hub International, one of the largest privately held insurance brokerages in the world. In his spare time, he is a master networker, facilitating 11 executive peer groups while sitting on multiple boards, including the Arts and Recreation Foundation of Overland Park, Blue Valley Recreation and Youth Programs, Big Brother Big Sisters of Greater Kansas City, Boys and Girls Club of Greater Kansas City, Newhouse Women's Domestic Violence Shelter, and Casey Single Mom. He also serves as the president of Top Gun Kansas City, which is the largest peer group of his kind for young executives with 180 members. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Scott. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Good morning to you. Let's talk about uh, you're the VP and a partner at uh, Hub International, correct? Sounds much more important than it is. <laughs> so we're going to dive into your career and all that. So I, I start the podcast out with two questions that I ask every guest. So we're um, we're on Zoom live here, and I can see uh, you have a, a beautiful uh, three-quarter pullover and probably a, a blue KU shirt. But w- what are you wearing below the desk? The uh, So it's actually uh, a company thing because I'm meeting with an organization that I actually have to talk about what I do for a living, which is which is unique. But then I have a commission painting right here by, I think they were one and a half and three and a half at the time. So it's my little girl, Kate, and my son, Nick. They're now three and five. So yeah, I'm just rocking and rolling it. You know, just like anything, when it's live, you're on Zoom, you know, people come in. Can't really stop it. So, uh, you know, how is your day going? How's your morning going? Mine, myself, it's going phenomenal. I'm very excited to have you. I know you're uh, you you have two of your own podcasts, and we'll get into that later. I know you ha- are on you know many boards, and you know you do a lot of peer groups. So, um, second question I always like to ask: So, growing up, what did you want to be? Uh, it sounds really silly. I wanted to be in sales. My mom and dad, my mom uh, is from Grand Rapids, Michigan, 
and she moved to Kansas City with three boys under the age of five, going to school at night, selling furniture, straight commission. And my father, uh, not originally from Kansas City, but grew up here later in life, was in medical device sales and later technology sales. So you do what your parents want to do. And so I was one of those weird people that actually knew that I wanted to do it. I just didn't think I'd end up in insurance. Yeah, you don't really... You don't really see that too often. Like, yeah, I want to be in sales. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I didn't know it at the time. I, found, I mean, I was listening to Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, I think it was either Tipping Points or David and Goliath. The audience can correct me. But I realized I was dyslexic when I was 28. So I just knew that I never really got positive accolades in the classroom. It was something I struggled with. It was just processing and uh, sought a lot of attention socially and in sports, just because that's where you got the instant gratification from. So I knew that to do something for a living and make money, you had to be smart. And I did not think I was smarter. And so I thought, you know, I saw sales as a way of working hard and communicating, but not necessarily having to study to be an engineer or to be an accountant or to be a nurse, just because that required a certain level of intellect and the ability to take a test, which was not my strength. Outside of your parents, what was the first thing uh, or uh, the first person you sold something to? Oh, man, that's a great question. Well, I probably sold my peers into doing things they shouldn't have been doing. So got into a lot of trouble. Uh, I always joke around. Now it's funny, but at the time, wasn't I ran an alcohol ring when I was 15 before I had a driver's license <laughs> for the Blue Valley School District. So I went to Northwest, but, you know, um, it's and again, it's not it's not a good thing. But I had my fun meter tapped at a young age. So if it was Tuesday night. You're 15, 16. I was like, where was the party? And so um, but, you know, it was really just selling people on throwing weird and wacky parties, which is a skill set later in life if you can harness it. Uh, but at the time it was, it was a lot of fun, but probably not a good thing. Wow. It was almost like you were the under uh, 21 prohibition, uh, ringleader in, in uh, blue Valley. <laughs> yeah. That's a great, it's a great, great way of putting it. Yeah. They park your cars on the next street and let's, uh, everyone sneak in, in the dark of night, you know? Yeah. There was a whole system. It was like, we were, a an assembly line getting ready for a party. You know, so, but again, not a good thing. Don't encourage it. A lot of people that are RH have children around middle school, high school, so they probably don't like that. So uh, did you have a, uh, in uh, junior high, high school, a, a sales type position where you actually got paid? So, yeah, I worked a ton of different jobs. The job that made me the most money was I got fired from being a lifeguard. And then I went back to the pool that I knew and they gave me the contract for the whole pool. So, um, you know, I'd make about $38,000 a summer and be broke by spring break every year at the University of Kansas. That was all running a bartending staffing business where you got basically half the price at all the bars because you hired the bartenders. So, you know, there was a wide variety of different businesses, but waiting tables, uh, working hard labor, Papa Murphy's, just anything and everything was, you know, if you can make a buck doing it, I was all about it. What gave you the idea to uh, do a bartending staffing business in college? I think that's phenomenal. So there were certain bars at the University of Kansas that I think with drinking and driving in the mid 2000s, people really became hyper focused on where they could walk in a great way. 
And so all the other bars really struggled for the first time to get people to go to them um, because the, the college kids wanted to walk there. So what we did was the campus was spread out into different sections, but we would pick off the coolest guy or girls or guys or girls from each section of the campus. And we'd bring them together on certain nights of the week. So that way you could pull a large group of people and it became a, a little bit of a, a happening where people wanted to go outside of the traditional places you could walk. And um, we thought it'd be cool to get half price off drinks and make a, a dollar off of the cover. So I did it with a buddy of mine. He now uh, runs a hedge fund of a multi-billion dollar agricultural firm. So I'm selling insurance. I think he did a really good job compared to what I did. But uh, it, was, it was a racket that we did that we thought was really fun. Interesting. I always feel it's difficult for an 18-year-old to determine you know, what they want to major in. So I, I noticed that you were a strategic communication major, which kind of makes sense, but a minor in psychology. So talk about, you know, how you pick the majors, uh, especially the psycho psychology portion. Uh, I, Jeff, I love that you're answering. So I'm going to give you a totally different answer. So I uh, get the luxury of speaking at the University of Kansas Business School a lot. Now, I was never allowed there when I was in school, but I joke with the undergrad that now they have to listen to me. Uh, but my first slide is my education, which is the bull, hawk, wheel, best five years of my life. And then I followed up with, I squeezed a three-year degree into five years. So, I mean, I'm very blunt. I was not at school for school. I wanted to graduate because at the time that was what society uh, wanted you to. I think if it was today, I don't know if I would have done it. But, um, you know, graduating college was probably the hardest thing I ever had to do. And it was an easy degree. It wasn't like a hard degree, but for me to process information and a lot of it was writing papers and communications in psychology. And when your grammar isn't the best as a, someone that's a little dyslexic, it wasn't, it was definitely not easy to do, but, you know, I always wanted to understand how people think and what they do today. I think that's more repetition, that old 10,000 hour rule. If you do it over and over again, you can get good at it. I think if you try to read people too much, it comes across as unauthentic or trying to game the system. And we're human beings. You can't, you can't trick someone into doing something. You want two parties to come together to discuss it, to find what's going to be the best end game. And so at the time, psychology just came naturally to me. But honestly, it was, I think it was easier than uh, the other classes. Like I, I think I, when they, the teacher would say, look to your left and look to your right. One of you won't be here. I dropped the class every. I went. There's a place <laughs> called Strong Hall, so I went and dropped it. I like, you know, my friends like you should give it a shot. I'm like, ah, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, and strategic communication was the one you couldn't get into the business school, right? Basically, a lot of people go that it route. Is, well, so let me preface this: it's a it's a great degree, and there's a lot of really smart people in there, and a lot of people did it prior to law school. I bet that was less than 10%. A lot of people may, I don't want to degrade the degree and what people did, but I was, I was the lowest of the low on the totem pole. So yeah, it was, it was like, Hey, Scott, I know you want to do journalism because my little brother did it. And they're like, you're going to graduate in seven years. I was like, how did I graduate in five? They're like communications. I was like, done. <laughs> so that was my thought process. It wasn't anything more. I knew general studies was a really, was not looked upon well. 
So I thought strategic communications was a fancy way of saying I graduated. So talk a little bit more, like uh, you mentioned, if you were maybe graduated high school this May, you may have not pursued a college degree. Uh, expand on that a little bit more, Scott. So I talk a lot about uh, to the kids at the business school that uh, on average, the average household income makes $54,000 a year as a household. So, you know, two parents, children, that's what they make. Well, at a state school, typically, if not more, the average cost of a year of going to school is $54,000. And so my mom and dad are amazingly nice people and they sacrificed really hard for me and my brothers to go to school. Now that price has gotten, I think my brother's three years younger, but that price had close to double by the time he had gotten to school. So I don't know what school costs today or what it's going to cost. But I think for the first time ever, we're going to see a flattening. So I think it's a little unique, but the cost of school is really going to go network with the wealthiest 90% or top 10%, but no one ever takes that advantage of it. A lot of people don't. They're there to get an education, they're there to get a degree, but really it's probably the wealthiest room they'll ever be in is their classrooms. And a lot of those that are in school today, the state school, have a pretty high likelihood of not being able to send their children to that school unless they're getting a degree that's a noun, an accountant, an engineer, a nurse. And so if I would have known what I know today and I would have had the uh, education on how to be good in business, I probably would have not have gone um, or I would have made a giant mistake and I would have been a poor steward of my parents' money by allowing them to send me to school because if you don't get a good degree at a state school, it is a ton of money to go onto the workforce to make 40 grand and just be taught a really harsh reality. You go from financially the top of the ladder down to the lowest and you may never get back up. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. I, th I think universities today are at a tipping point. They're going to have to evolve and change to really accommodate what's really needed, right? Their model, it's almost like newspapers and, you know, Hallmark cards. I mean, they're, you know, it's a dying, it's a dying, you know, those are dying industries. And I think universities are following that path, just my opinion, obviously. Yeah, it's more like an all-inclusive resort with, you know, with the University of Missouri having a lazy river and two recreation facilities and <laughs> dining. And to, I mean, it's just, it's just more and more to get you to go there and less and less sometimes on the education side. Now, I'm not saying that about all degrees, I'm just saying a huge chunk of them well over 50% of them are not degrees that have a market value. So um, you took your three-year program, graduated in five years. You walked down the hill on that Sunday in May. Did you already have a job secured? What was your, you know, the start of your career, your professional career journey? So we, when, when I walked, all the guys that had already graduated went and walked down with me again. And they're like, hey, Haven's graduated. Everyone's like, I had no idea who's going to graduate. So we got champagne bottles, didn't listen to the procedure and just walked down spraying champagne and was again, not a good thing. But since we're friends, I love sharing that. But I walked into the world uh, probably being rejected about 60, 70 jobs. I took a ton of personality exams and uh, I ended up waiting tables at the Blue Moose and I only got the lunch section. So like the best sections at night and then, you know, the cocktail sections better than that. And then bartending is better than that. 
And I went from ran, running a bartending and shopping business to begging for a job uh, at the Blue Moose. And the, the restaurant just opened. And so it just speaks to what the recession was like. And that was 2010. And then I got a job cold calling door to door a year later for a company called Worldwide Express. And I cold called every door on foot, 71,000 companies in the metropolitan from Warrensburg, St. Joe, Leavenworth, Raymore Peculiar, Lawrence, Kansas, even Sedalia. And so every three and a half months, I had to get a new pair of black shoes because when you get out of when you get out of the car, your left shoe wears out. And then I spent the next three to four years when I got a job at an insurance company cold calling in a queue. No one would meet with me because I had nothing to offer, but I found that meeting with people that were unemployed was the best way to get people to take a meeting with me. And after you do six, seven meetings a day, including weekends before I had kids, you end up running out of people to meet. But, you know, if you don't have a skill set or something you can offer to people, you have to figure out what that is and what value that is. Now, that's an extreme example, uh, but, you know, with extreme examples come extreme payoffs. Yeah, phenomenal. I mean, I mean, as a kid growing up, did you have that kind of grit and resilience? I mean, that's phenomenal that, you know, you just kept grinding, um, you know, you're working at the Blue Moose and you're just, okay, and then you get a job, you're literally door to door. I mean, could you actually call people at the logistics uh, provider when you first started or you literally had to go face to face? It was 95% face-to-face, 5% you would call on your way out into the field and your way out. But you were the only time you'd use the phone is when you were calling to set up a meeting. So you'd pretend like you knew everything about your company and you're like, hey, how does Tuesday, Thursday work next week, 10, 15 a.m.? You just made up stuff. So, um, but, you know, uh, have you ever seen the movie Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion? Oh, yeah, it's been years, but yeah. Okay, there's a good, okay, I'm glad. I'm glad this didn't fall place. But for the younger viewers, that is where they go to a high school reunion, and the guy that was the man in high school is a loser. Right. And that was my fear. And I bet, like, up until, like, a year ago, still my fear. And I never wanted to be that loser that was, you know, a, uh, I was, I, I was, I never bullied anyone because I, I never knew it was on the test, so it was nice to everyone, everyone. I always can tell who people are that know me uh, because they know I've never been mean to anyone genuinely. And so was very popular in school and in college, but I felt like because I was so popular, a lot of people wanted to see me fail. And I was definitely on that failure course. And so I chose to try to dig my way out of it because I didn't want to be a loser to other people. I don't know if that makes sense, but I didn't want to be that guy that thought he was awesome and then was a huge loser. So I think that's why I worked hard. Yeah, most uh, high school uh, students that are supplying alcohol are, are pretty popular. <laughs> yeah, so you, you, you have a lot of friends. Yeah, everyone's like, oh, be nice to that guy. But, you know, I wish I had a better answer that was uh, more of what it is, but that's just what it is. I guess that's what I feel in my heart. And if I had a better answer, I may redo it, but I, I just didn't want to be that loser. I just wanted to work hard. And whether it was in college or uh, when you first started your sales career, who's the first uh, big influence on you from a, a sales uh, f- selling philosophy? 
I think we've, t- we've actually talked about this and then I had a, you know, I went back to like one of my heroes early on. I went back to her and uh, I just was like really unique and like, it didn't pan out the way I thought it would want to like say, Hey, thank you. And all these great things. But um, I had a big belief that I thought it was a really good secret hack that you could have a thousand mentors. I think when you're growing up, you're like, Oh, I need a mentor. One, maybe two. And I thought to myself, there's that old Mark Twain quote that every man or woman is my master in some way, shape, or form, whether it's the person sweeping the street or whether it's the CEO. And I genuinely believe that because I felt it because I knew there were things that I was incapable of and I needed help from everyone. And so I think influentially someone like yourself, Jeff, that met with me early on in my career and a lot of other people that took time was all part of that process that influenced me. And the other thing is not one system works. And so another quote, uh, Bill Self, the University of Kansas said his greatest uh, expertise or greatest gift is being a chameleon. And I thought that was really disingenuous. I was like, that's not good. You're supposed to be authentic, supposed to be genuine. You can't be everything to everyone. But as I got older, I realized that being a chameleon is still being genuine. It's just meeting people where they are. And so I think a variety of mentors and meeting people where they are is the influence of many others like yourself. Yeah, and I I really didn't realize how actually young you were when we first met. Uh, but I always thought you were, you know, just wise beyond your years. But I won't go into your accolades uh, yet. But uh, I've always admired you and what you've done at such a young age. So uh, we're in a little bit uh, different demographic, but it's all good. Well, likewise, Chip. I mean, I admire you because you always want to help people. And I always break it down. You've heard me say it again. There's 95% of people that are really really nice we live in the midwest everyone's nice no one moves here for the beachfront properties and then there's the five percent that genuinely always want to help and it's just rare and i just you know you know you are someone in that five percent that everyone you meet even though you're wanting to progress different things it's still secondary to you wanting to help other people and that's just really unique well thank you um, let, let's go back to when you were first setting up meetings and you, you talked about unemployed people. So what kind of, what was your thinking there? Obviously they would meet and you're trying to help them maybe, but what, what was your strategy there? Another context to put in there now at this day and age, 2022, it wasn't this way. This is thinking like 2012, 13, 14, but another group was the women who mean business group. They would always meet with me and they're always very kind. But now that I have time to set up the context of it is two totally different groups. I'm not relating people that are unemployed to the way we go this. I'm putting it as two groups of people that are very open to taking care of people. And I think the women in business is some of the, it's one of the best groups in Kansas City. But when someone is in between, I would pretend that I had all this knowledge of jobs that were going on. And I had a little bit and I would meet with people and I would inform them of different things that were going on. And I'd introduce them to other people. So my value was, I know Jeff, I heard this startup, millennial companies hiring, and they would walk away from the meeting being like, I got to meet Jeff and I heard this good information. That Scott guy, he, he's, he's in tune. He knows he, he's got to pull some things. And then over and over and over, as, you, as the world gets smaller and smaller, you kind of do know about, I would say 30% because you only have to bat 300 to go to the Hall of Fame. 
But, you know, in general, companies over 50 employees, I typically know 30% of the entire leadership team. And I probably know a good chunk of the other companies, but just don't know them personally. So I think it's phenomenal that you came out of school, though, and you really, and I grew up in a different era. I grew up in the era professionally where I was the first generation of workers, professionals that didn't have a job for life at a company, right? We weren't going to get the gold watch after 30 years and yada, yada, yada. So, uh, but you just really, you know, networking or the power of building relationships wasn't really a thing when I first got out of college, right? You you were kind of insulated. It was just a different time. Um, But how did you really take, I mean, because you're phenomenal at it. I mean, you know, you're there to help. And when we met, you were phenomenal. You introduced me to a, a ton of great people. But how did you evolve to get that way of thinking? So thank goodness you and I are on the same wavelength because I can give you references and you'll know it, but the audience will be like, what's he talking about? But do you remember Wayne's World 2 when Chris Farley was getting shot with tennis balls? Right. <laughs> and they said, they said, why are you here? And he said he had nowhere else to go. Well, I had nowhere else to go. So, I lo- again, I wish I could give you a great answer. But um, I do believe in when I mentor people or I talk to people, I'm the name tag and Sharpie guy. I get the coffee. I open the door. But when you bring everyone in a room together, you automatically are the person that's the, I don't want to say the highest, but you're the most well-received out of familiarity. So since you brought everyone together, they like you. And so in running nine peer groups, say on five boards, two podcasts, four speakeasies, I'm a big believer in bringing the group together. And uh, one thing I don't share a lot, but hopefully not. Well, I hope a lot of people are, but hopefully too many people aren't listening. But I try to, I try to now have some privacy. But one of my proudest moments of my career was last Friday. ACG, a great group, Association for Capital Growth, heavily recommend joining it. And FEI, Financial Executives for International, come together every year at the beginning of the year to have an economist speak. It's one of the most well-attended events. Well, it's back to that 95-5 rule. 95% uh, salespeople. And I know those groups will argue with me, which is fine. I'm I'm ready for it. And then there's 5% of decision makers that are not on their board, that are the CFO, the CEO, the president. On Friday, I put together 45 of them with Terry Dunn as the guest speaker. And had five times as many more decision makers is a room of three, four hundred people. And there was no social media, nothing was on it. Everyone showed up for their 90 minutes. They left with no business cards. Uh, and these are all groups that run independently on their own. So I run five of these when I call operating executive peer groups, but it was a dream of mine to do it. I did not want it to be on the same day that this other group was, but it showed me that. People want to get together with their peers and they don't want to pay a dollar for it as opposed to hearing a great economist and seeing a bunch of great people, but all those people want something from them. So how do you put together a room where no one wants anything and they all respect each other and they can get back to their day and be productive? And that is from 10 years of networking. So it wasn't, it's not, it wasn't an overnight deal. It was, a culmination. And I had a lot of people tell me I was an idiot for doing it. And uh, it felt rewarding that when I competed against, I think one of the best products in Kansas city and there was a really good attendance five times better than the other 
competition or not competition. I think there's competition. I knew that it, I knew it was a good idea. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Um, but do you think you, I mean, these peer groups, again, I think it's an outside, I know Top Gun, I can't name them all, um, is one of them you founded. But I mean, do you see the kind of the the roots of that idea back when you were uh, working with the bars at, in Lawrence that were kind of spread out and, and, and driving this where you brought groups together? Is that kind of where you, that idea sprung out of? hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, we just failed a ton, but we had fun doing it and we got used to people telling us we were idiots. We got used to telling us the idea wasn't any good, but they would show up. And so, you know, I think it's kind of like, uh, it's cool to be like, I don't know. The more you don't care, the cooler you are. Well, as adults, it's not much different. You know, if you pretend you don't care, uh, you know, no one's going to think of you as, as being weird, but you know, if you give someone a product that they want, they're going to show up. Understanding the psychology of what they want is really hard, and a lot of people don't realize with business events, it's so much psychology on what to do from where it's located, the time of the week, how long the meeting is, who's going to be there, what's the topic, um, why are we getting together. Is it communicated three months in advance? Is there a reminder of the week before? Is there a reminder of the week of? Is there easy parking? Does the population revolve around where the location is going? So once you put you know those 27 different factors together, you can put together an event. Now you just need a decade of networking to find the group of people that would go to it. And I think that's the mistake a lot of people make is they throw out an idea and they put it together and they just think it's going to happen, which is awesome. But are they willing to do it over and over and over again to fine tune it to make it great? And I think that's just like any entrepreneur, you know, just fail a bunch. And then you figure out what doesn't work. You're not figuring out what's worked. You're just figuring out what doesn't work. Right. And I think I'm on that journey with networking and peer groups of what doesn't work. So I don't think I've figured out by any means. I can just tell you what doesn't work. How old were you when you developed your first professional peer group and which one was it? It, so the only peer group that's public uh, was started nine years ago called Top Gun Kansas City. That's the largest uh, millennial business group. And it was started at, this is how long, uh, what's that bar? That's by Firebirds. Uh, Brewtop, it was around. So yeah. Brewtop and, uh, was with a couple buddies. And I give another reference. I call it Shawshank Redemption, where you had to ask to go to the bathroom. You know, back in the day when, you know, you're millennial in the recession, and, you know, your boss was like, what are you doing? You're like, oh, can I go to the bathroom? They're like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Be back here shortly. And you're like, right away. And so we would meet at 7 o'clock at night. And then fast forward, we've helped start a group called The Loop, which is a Gen Z group that Emerson Hodas runs and came up with, uses a lot of the strategies that Top Gun does, but they meet at 7 o'clock at night. So they're 20-somethings, and now Top Gun is mid-30s. So, But that was nine years ago, and that was the first professional one. And then what I realized about when you make something public, you have to be intentional. Um, when you receive praise from the Business Journal and from Ingrams and from Startland, you know, you need to be a reflection of Kansas City. Now, Top Gun's 100% funded by my wife and I. So we're private. Unlike Centurions, we don't have a half million dollar budget, 43-year history. But we want to be diverse. 
we want to represent different parts of Kansas City because we choose to. Back to the genuous. Don't pay a dollar. People show up because they choose to show up. That's what creates the longevity of the group. And I tried to get a bunch of people to drop at the beginning of the year because I really want to get down to 100 people. So we've gone all the way up to 160. And it went from 120 to 117. So I didn't accomplish my goal of getting 20 people to drop. But it's because I think it's it's a good product that people like for now. And if I'm not being diligent of what works or what people want, they'll drop. And what made you pick top? I mean, that, you know, the the millennial group, what made you pick that first? It just uh, it was all it's all I had. It was I, I know and there was no executive group I could pitch. Uh, I always thought there would be a need for a CFO group. And then I realized that a lot of CFOs become COOs and presidents and CEOs. And so that's what the group's formed into. But it starts out as a CFO. Uh, but on the Top Gun group, I just was, I felt like nothing else was out there. Um, I felt like a lot of uh, the current groups that were out there that were for younger people were like a, a, a stepping stone. Like it was a river. You went through it, but you didn't stay there like a lake. And so I wanted to create a lake where people could come of age forever and uh, grow in the business community. So you started in the uh, logistics, then you went to sell insurance. Now, was that, um, I know it uh, wasn't hub, but trust, did you go to? Was it- yeah, great memory. So uh, trust was two mergers of Crutcher, Heartland and Power Group. They both would be over 50 years old today. And then they merged together to form trust. And then seven of my partners and I, took over trust and then we sold it to hub. And so we've been working at hub now for four years. And we, in the last two years, we've hired 55 people. And the thing that we're most proud of is out of those 55, 53 were referred by people in the office that worked there. And all 55 are from Kansas city. So those 55 people would actually make up the six largest insurance agency by themselves in Kansas city. So I think outside of marrying our spouses, it was the luckiest thing that we did. Um, when we were selling our company, we, we really didn't even pay attention to Hub. But, you know, the co- company's close to doubled uh, in size since we've been there to be the fifth largest insurance company in the world and the largest privately held in the world. And so the for context, we have a great company on the plaza in Kansas City, and it's doubling that by the end of the year. So it's a, it's a good group. And it's secret sauce. It's just the middle market. A lot of people focus on the Fortune 5000, where Hub just really focuses on the middle market businesses. So companies with 50 employees, 100 employees, 200 employees, those make up way more business than the Fortune 5000. So in your day-to-day role at Hub, like what's a typical day for you? Uh, six to seven meetings, and none of it is with insurance. Today, I, today someone referred me into an opportunity where they want to talk about insurance that's incredibly rare it's awesome but really it's just connecting people i work with companies over 100 employees on their healthcare benefits there are only 850 out of 71,000 425 of them purchase insurance in a different type of way maybe not the most transparent so we work with the folks that purchase in a different way which is called self-insured and so the odds of me meeting a CFO of those 425, 425 companies out of 3.8 million people in Kansas City is like 0.00001. So I'm not a good referral partner with people, even though I can generate business for different businesses, but I have to be on my toes at all times because I never know 
who someone goes to church with, who their neighbor is, who their relative is, who a former coworker is. And so it's kind of that what I do every day is I try to interact with as many people as possible and then try to find those opportunities for my business partner, Melissa Ford. And so she's 43 from a small town, Clinton, Missouri. I think she's the best in Kansas City at what she does. And then my other partners do a wide variety of things, whether it's railroads, manufacturing, we're the largest insurer of cannabis in the world, trucking. So, you know, it's really just having my antennas up and listening and genuinely uh, recommending an opportunity if people are interested. But the vast majority of the time, what I do for a living has nothing to do with insurance. Yeah, so interesting. Uh, did you have a career? I mean, once you got into insurance, did you start developing a career strategy? No. So I developed a book of business and then someone told me they give me a hundred dollars per cold call meeting I set up. So funny enough, two weeks ago, we had a meeting. It's one of the largest hospitals in the state of Kansas. And there's a cold call I got paid a hundred dollars for. Well, my coworkers now each make over a hundred thousand dollars in reoccurring revenue on that account. So I lost that deal. But the point is, is when you have nowhere to go and you're starting out, no one can make money if they pay you what you're worth. They have to make money on you. And some people take really extreme advantage of people and some people don't. I think generational wealth teaches their children how not to get taken advantage of and what the value is worth because they know it. And I think if you don't know what your value is worth, you just do it. But that $100 per cold call per meeting I set got me the engagement ring with my wife. It paid the rent for my apartment and it allowed me to go to weddings of my buddies that were doing much better than I was. So, but on the flip side, we sold a company and, and it was a very, very amazing, lucky, lucky story. So it's, it all balances out, but um, it went from doing business development simplistically for the whole company to then finding Melissa Ford that we had already worked with each other. She was just getting kids out of diapers and I was just, you know, trying not to be hung over on Monday and we just found each other at the same time and She's just an amazing human being. I trust her with my life. Um, her and my wife run my life, Julie. Uh, but if it wasn't for Melissa, I don't think we would have developed the largest employee benefits book of business in Kansas or Kansas City. And we're both pretty young. So I'm 36, she's 43. So we accomplished that at a young age. But if it wasn't for her, I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing today. To do what you're doing in terms of, you know, uh, eight or nine peer groups and, and all those things. So are you, a, you're doing a lot of events. So are you a great event planner? Are you organized? Yeah. So I try to do everything six months in advance. So I think that's the only stress I have in my life is when if something gets to like three, four months out and I haven't planned it. So I have a shot clock in my mind on when to do those things. But um, back to the failure, I know a lot of things that don't work. So I know where to have things, what time of the day, how to communicate, and what's going to get people going to go to those meetings. So a lot of trial and error over a decade. So, but yeah, I plan every meeting. I get the name tags. I get the coffee. And the number one thing I do is I make sure everyone goes around the room to share about themselves. And so, Jeff, you've been in many of those rooms. For the life of me, I don't know why people don't do it. I can tell you what, no one, no one ever is excited to go listen to an expert. They don't want to hear an hour of an expert. 
they they want to interact. Now, a good friend of ours, Harry Campbell, who's one of the best uh, public speakers in the country and is here in Kansas City, that's different. There's about 10 of those people in Kansas City. But outside of that, you know, I love Jeff and I love Scott, but no one's going to want to hear us talk about marketing, insurance, or sales. And so what people really want is to talk about themselves. Everyone's favorite word is their name and everyone's favorite topic is themselves. So just give them what they want, have it centrally located, communicated clearly, and have it be around a bunch of people that are really successful. Well put, Scott. Notice I used your name there. Um, so do you use any type of productivity tools or you know, organizational tools? Like, How do you keep track of that, You know, that event planning six months in advance? What kind of tools and systems are you using? So because I don't know anything about what I do for a living, there's lots of room up here. So I don't become an expert in anything. So I'm able to be a half an inch deep and a mile wide. Um, so people used to insult me and say that you're never going to get anywhere being an inch deep and a mile wide. So now I tell people I'm a half an inch deep and a mile wide. But, you know, I think it allows me to remember things that are going on with Jeff's family, things that you and your wife are doing, uh, things about the Mediterranean diet and having a big salad that you have each morning that you and Harry Campbell have worked with each other for 32 years. You know, all those things allow me to pick up and retain information that I wouldn't be able to do if I had to learn anything. And the two metrics I use are more metaphors. And one gentleman that actually told me that made fun of me for uh, an inch deep and a mile wide is actually someone I take advice from. So it goes both ways. He always says, if I get on my bike and I pedal hard every day, things will be fine. It's probably that old uh, uh, Confucius saying, you know, any man that wakes up before the sun rises, will, his family will never be poor. Um, but the other metric I use is from a guy that um, he's a business development guy and he's very successful for a construction company. And he says he's got to pump the well. Well, if you don't pump the well every day, the water goes down to the bottom. But if you pump it every day, the water is always overflowing. And so what I do is seven days a week. Now, now Gen Z, if they're listening, that's it's not a work-life balance. You know, it's not that bad. But if you focus seven days a week and maybe an hour on a weekend, not work, but just, just doing things, I think you keep that well from a, it continues to overflow. Safe to say that you know you're one of the most well connected people in Kansas City. You know, I'd, but how do you keep track of it all? I mean, is it is all in your mind, or you, do you use some kind of CRM or some kind of you know note taking tool like Evernote or something like that? LinkedIn and in my head. Okay. So I just friend people on LinkedIn that I've met with, and so the people and I don't have thirty thousand. Aaron Folk's the most well connected person in Kansas City that I do a podcast with, Drinks with Leaders. So she by a long shot. I'm more in person. So we started the Drinks of Leaders show that you've been on multiple times because she was the, the business journal named her the most uh, best online networker and me the best in-person networker. I'm pretty sure I paid for it. I don't think Aaron paid for it or they associated us together. Um, but um, I mean, I always say, you know, my sample size of 11,000 people is just in-person meetings. So if you do the map, you know, seven times, you know, if you're from the area and you meet seven people a day, over time, you do accumulate those. It's just not giving up. But then also the other part is most people only need to go about a year. I, would, I call it a crusade. You only have to go like a year of a crusade to meet a bunch of people. And you have a really big network. 
most people, uh, Cam Bishop reference is a corporate refugee. They just, they're within their four walls or they have a kid, they live in, you know, they live in Johnson County or they live in Liberty, but they have a killer network in Seattle because they travel there for their client. So, I mean, that's just a lot of folks. So if you hit it hard for a year, you have a giant network. If you hit it hard for three years, you're one of the most well-connected people in the city. The people that end up getting to do it for more than a decade, it's not, it's luck. It's that they have a job that has them doing it. So the network is a product of luck and then also not being good at anything else. So I end up doing what I'm good at. So what's your big reveal in terms of your personality? Like something about you, a lot of people will say superpower, but the thing about you that most people don't know that's really a talent of yours, what would you say that is? I don't really have one. I mean, I uh, shotgun beers with my teeth. Uh, that's <laughs> going to be a big one that a lot of people in the business community community like. But, you know, a lot of these personality traits, sometimes my competitors use it against me to say that, you know, is this person professional or are they doing what they're doing? But I think of it as, you know, if you are who you are, you never have to change anything. And so uh, to your point of a superpower, I'd love to ask you that question if you'd answer it on your own podcast. But, you know, I think the 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 thing that I'm good at is I work with working moms. Um, I find that if you can get someone that is already doing 17 jobs, having them do an 18th or 19th one isn't that hard. So my superpower is not mine, but I think it's just partnering with working moms because what they can do is so much more than I believe other people can. Jeff, what do you think your superpower is? Oh, we're turning the tables here. Um, you know, you asked me the first time I did uh, drinks with leaders. I, I think you're a phenomenal interviewer, uh, even though it's not a deep dive interview uh, podcast every Tuesday at three o'clock central. Go on LinkedIn, a little promo there. But well, I mean, you asked me, you know, why uh, why I really like to help people. And I, I honestly, if we go back to the, you know, the, the video of that, I, I really had to hold it in. I almost started breaking down emotionally because I, I, I really didn't know, but I, uh, you know, I'm a, I, I love the read. Um, and one of Eckhart uh, Tolle's books, it, it said people that like to give and, and, and be generous and help people, it's almost a selfish thing because it makes them feel good. So I don't know if that's why, but I, you know, I really generally love to help people. And I, I, you know, who knows why that is. And I think it's, you know, you have to care about people and, you know, every, every, you know, team I've led, you know, in the last, you know, 35 plus years um, will tell you, I care, you know, and I care about them as people. And, you know, what I had Harry on the podcast last week and i see a lot of similarities between harry and i's uh, leadership's philosophy and like i he's done it at stratospheric levels so i uh, but i mean we you know we're very similar from a leadership perspective and i think a lot of great leaders and i, I you know i humbly put myself in you know at least close to that category I would say, you know, you have the same characteristics. You may do things a little bit different ways, but you all care. You want to, you know, you want to make your team's job as easy as possible. You know, that servant leadership mentality. So I don't know if it's a superpower, but that's what I would say about myself. 
Yeah, I think the superpower is the consistency daily and weekly basis. A lot of people want to give, a lot of people want to help, uh, but they do it for sporadic periods of time, which is fine. But what makes it a superpower for Jeff, for you, is that you do it every day. So that's that's the unique thing, I think, what makes it a superpower. Well, thank you for saying that. It's very nice. I'm going to go back to your selling philosophy. So I think you did a podcast uh, with Bob Berg. So I, I love the Go-Giver book. I was in a job search one time and somebody recommended that book to me. And I, I have gifted that book more than uh, almost any other book. And But I when I hear what you do and how you sell, I, it just... You know, it, I think it's that go-giver mentality. So I'd, I'd love to hear your comments about that. So uh, I think like, uh, I'm sure there's more people, but I put Randy Powell that put that podcast together, Dr. Michelle Robin and Peter Malouk and Terry Dunn on just like this huge pedestal. So Randy Powell is, I mean, one of the most amazing executives in Kansas City. And, um, that the gentleman is the CEO of a company, but he just wants to connect and help people. So I don't hold a candle to Randy. And then all of a sudden I get on a podcast. It's Bob Berg of the Go-Giver. I'm like, whoa, this is wrong, wrong thing. So I'm trying to like smooth it over and make Bob the center of attention as he should be. Definitely. He's probably like, whoa, what, why did these two, why am I paired up with this person? So I think it did a good job uh, pivoting on that, but Bob Berg then flipped it around and tried to make the show about me, which was crazy. And it was, it was really unbelievable. But uh, because I'm not a big reader, I'm dyslexic, uh, I, I always tell people like, yeah, I read it, but not really. Uh, but I did read Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people because it was on a, an 11 hour drive to and from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I think after like six car trips, I finished the book. Um, and, um, but the go-giver is – my, my partners talk about it all the time, and they relate me to it. So I, I that's very nice of people to say. I think it's uh, self-serving to to say that. But if you help people, that's the highest likelihood they're going to help you. And over time, to be really candid, I, have, I try to steer away from that because if you just go blindly help people all day, every day, your time just infinitely gets taken away. And when my wife was pregnant with our first kiddo, he's now five. I started not doing that. I started strategically, you know, not just taking any and all meetings, but really trying to make sure that I'm taking meetings that I'm uh, perpetuating my career for my partners and my family the way that I want to, but then also helping. So the way I draw the line is if someone comes from a unique, diverse background, or they need help, I will always meet with them. If they are an insurance guy or a banker or a financial advisor marketing from a really nice family, I'm probably not going to spend time with them. I'll, I'll help them in any way I can. So I want to preface that I don't just blindly help a bunch of people like many of the people I just referenced or folks like yourself. I am selective on people I do help. So I'm not... Uh, you know, just helping everyone. I don't want to use a Mother Teresa reference. I'm not. Uh, but if they, you know, if they've come on hard times or they're trying to learn or they're young, absolutely. Like, I love doing that. But um, we wish we could all do that every day, all day. But I probably only do that like four or five times a week out of the five, seven meetings a day that I do. So it's not, it's not a huge chunk of time. 
What are some of the companies in Kansas City that you really admire and why? So this is a question I get all the time. So I still help a ton of unemployed people today. There's just a lot of uh, CEOs and CFOs. And so I always tell people the grass is always greener when it's fertilized and bullshit. That's the problem a lot of people have is I walk them through what their compensation is going to be, what companies are going to pay, because I have a pulse on the Kansas City market, not the market in general, but now as we go to more national companies. So there are very, 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 very few companies that just rock. And if you talk to insiders at these companies, they go through periods of not rocking or not or not rolling. So it's unique. And a lot of times Kansas City, because we're a third tier city and we don't have a lot of media, you can really put out the message you want um, in many ways. So buyer beware on companies. You know, just just do due diligence. But companies that really rock, I would say, are Dimensional Innovations, North Point, Smart Warehousing, U.S. Engineering. Those are companies that I really admire, and I think they do a really good job, and I think it's their leadership that does a really good job. Now, are they perfect? Absolutely not. But I think, you know, Jeff, talking about your leadership style, um, they're great leaders. One thing they do is they everyone knows where they stand. And so, you know, if you're doing something within the company, you know what's expected, you know what's not expected. So if you do what's not expected, they remind you. And if you do what's not expected again, you may not be a part of the culture. And I think when someone can call balls and strikes and you know where you know where the, the guardrails are, that's a great company. And great leaders say, hey, here are the guardrails. If you get outside, if you get outside of it, you know, that's on you. But if you stay within it, it's 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 fine. And every success you have within those guardrails is your success. Every failure you have within those guardrails are my failure. I'll take the heat, you take the glory. But here are the here are the guardrails. And I think those companies have them and uh, which allow them to continue to flourish over time. Yeah, great points. When you go to KU and speak in front of seniors that are going to graduate, what do you tell them in terms of, you know, what to focus on when they're trying to get a job after they walk the hill? Yeah, so I super passionate thing and then unemployment went from 37 to 35 this past jobs report. So they're fine. The, the if you're graduating, you're going to be a okay. But the number one thing I tell people is respond quickly. I think it's a millennial thing. I don't know what happened. I don't know what baby boomers taught their kids like me, but respond quickly. You know, we are aware that you don't have a lot going on in college. You could tell us you got a lot going on, but, you know, we were there. For you to, re for someone to respond within 24 hours is mandatory. And so if people are not responding, within 24 hours and hopefully within the hour during business hours. So I tell them eight to eight to five. If you're sleeping in, check your phone, wake up, you know, respond to that email, but that's all you have to do. Just respond quickly. That's it. Yeah. It's amazing. I, you know, as you know, I've done a couple online uh, programs teaching recent college graduates how to, you know, how to navigate the job search. Cause you're right. They're all going to get jobs. It just be proactive. <laughs> <laughs> and try to get a great job that fits your personality, a great company that matches that. And it, 
you know, it's a process, but, you know, you know, they send me the resume and I don't rewrite their resumes. They're college graduates. They can format a resume, but I could look at one and in 10, 15 minutes, I can give them comments back and say, but one of the things I say is get it, use your Gmail. Don't use ku.edu because you're not going to have that, you know, two weeks after you graduate or whatever the time period is. So you're not going to be able to check when they tell you you have an interview coming up or, you know, you you need to schedule an interview. So it's interesting. Um, one thing that I do uh, on a, not daily, but four to five days a week is I don't help anyone unless they create a top 10 list of opportunities. So if they create a top 10 list, not companies, absolutely not companies. Not that hard to think of cool companies and research them, but actual opportunities. And people are going to say, hey, the best opportunities aren't posted. I'm like, not really. They're, they're, most are posted. And a lot of times when you interview at a position, they will oftentimes find you another position in the company. And then those don't exist. But you need an entry point. And so until they create a top 10 list, um, and, there, and again, this isn't a uh, someone that, what you know not a college if they have a college degree or someone that, that if they need help putting it together i'll always help them put it together but for the most part that rarely happens so if they don't create a top 10 list i'll argue that they're saying hey jeff do the work for me and what you're saying is take you know take some responsibility because that exercise is really meaningful and they're going to say well i don't know about 10 companies i want to do and i would say it doesn't need to be perfect it, these 10 companies none of them could be who you want to work for just put it on paper lead the horse to water and let those conversations flow. And if you have one or two on that top 10, and they don't work out, you got a new top 10 list, add two more. And so by creating a top 10 list of opportunities and responding quickly, they are guaranteed to get a job with 3.5 unemployment. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I tell them to go through what they really like to do. Look through your debit or credit card statements. Where do you spend your money? Because that's what you like to do. And not that you're going to get a job at the wheel or the bull or whatever, but you, you know, know thyself, right? Because you're going to get a job. But, you know, there's two things about a great job. One is the company culture, which you can kind of find out about through networking and building relationships in those companies and who you work for. Now, that even during an interview process, it's hard to discern because people come off in an interview and their best self, and then they could be jerks later on. But, you know, you could basically do the research, you know, as well as, you know, you need to negotiate and you being in sales, you, you realize that. So do research on what they offer you and what other people are getting offered in that, in that space. Because if you get a, if you can go from 42,000 starting salary to 47, that's worth over a million dollars in the course of a career. I mean, because no, you up your baseline. Yeah, and then the uh, the uh, the the purpose of the top ten list is, and to your point, you're exactly correct. But when when someone make if you're selling a house and someone makes an offer on the house, it's only worth what that one offer is. So you have to get multiple offers. So you have to crescendo it at the right time, and to do that, you need multiple opportunities. And if you're just deciding between one job, I was helping out a young person. And he basically made it apparent he didn't like the other job. And he told the employer that. And he was like, well, surely I'm worth like 20, 30 grand more of what they were trying to ask him to do. And he totally was. He's worth more. And I was like, "You're unless you get another offer, they're going to stick to their guns. Why would they offer you more? It's like watching Shark Tank. You know, it's like they're just going to, you know, 
you say 40,000 and then they're like, but I'm worth 60 and you're like 40,000. You're like, Ooh, you didn't go up at all. So they don't have to. So yeah, if you can generate multiple offers again, not rocket science from Jeff and Scott today, but a lot of times people don't do it. No, exactly. Um, uh, two things to conclude. Um, any crazy stories that uh, a client uh, of yours did, you, uh, no names, uh, unless you want to reveal that, but you know, uh, any requests of you that were just unbelievable or something they did behavior, uh, on a, you know, an outing to the ballpark that had maybe some other stops along the way after, uh, after the, uh, uh, the, the game or something like that. Usually that's more of me doing wild and crazy things. So I don't know if it's ever been like a person, but uh, I told a story the other week and it was really cool. My business partner, Melissa, got to go to that meeting because she actually had a, a shoes meeting across first bank or something personally. So she attended one. Usually I have no salespeople attend, but she got a chance to see someone uh, that's been a really good friend and a really good client. And seven years ago, she turned me down for about three years because she thought I was a financial advisor, which is fair. We have had that deal before. They then refer us to a deal, which is a large dental clinic with a bunch of different dental clinics all throughout the Midwest. And then they, during the pandemic, they referred us to a 600 life medical group that we never met with and we, we closed and then a 8,000 life group that we close. And so a person that seven years ago wouldn't meet with me for three years ends up changing her and I's lives. And we're all super young. So we have the, you know, 20 more years to work with each other. But the crazy stories I have are a chance of a chance of a chance that work out. Now, 99% of them don't work out. But if you do 100 of them, one of them will. And this one in particular worked out three more times. So it was kind of cool. Wow. Fantastic. Um, so to close, let's, uh, two things. Uh, what advice would you give uh, a, a young professional in the sales, in the sales profession? And then two kind of people in their mid career, what kind of, you know, kind of leadership, um, you know, things to focus in the leadership area, what advice would you give them? 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. You're always in the office. Respond quickly. And if you don't know the answer, just say you don't know and you'll find out within 24 hours. And if you do that, people, they have, they have nothing not to like about you. You're there, you're showing up, you're working hard. And then eventually, if you show neglect and you choose not to do something because you're not learning it or you're not doing it, that's on you. But in the beginning, you're not supposed to know anything. And they're going to take someone that shows up at 7 a.m. and leaves at 7 p.m. all day over someone that's way smarter, that thinks they know everything, that's only their, you know, Gen Z quiet quitting thing, whatever it is. But, you know, just you don't know what you don't know. Be honest about it and just work hard. And uh, you don't have to be at the office at all times. But you do need to be there at 7 a.m. and you do need to leave at 7 p.m. And um, if you want work-life balance, you got a law, you know, that's you're young. You can do it on the weekends. You can do corporate challenge in the evening and go to lunch with people. You can have plenty of work-life balance. So just because you're working an extra two, three hours doesn't mean you have, don't have work-life balance. Yeah. And I think especially in sales and definitely post-pandemic, it's 
and I've always believed in this, uh, you know, people can do their work at any time. Right. So just, it's a, it's yeah. a blend, you know, put the, you know, I've, I have a load of laundry going right now. Right. So, so. Same here. <laughs> Look at that. No, I mean, it, it's, it's so, it's so true. And I think people, miscommunicate that now that is not advice for someone that is a now an engineer an architect an accountant you can do whatever you want to do that's the then you make another decision do you want executive pay or do you want associate pay and if you want associate pay leave it 430 you're fine you're good you have a degree you have a skill set that will take care of you the rest of your life and that is your decision and it's a great one to have you have freedom in that decision if you want to be an executive, don't be upset when the person at seven o'clock is getting promoted and you're leaving at four thirty. So, what advice would you have for a young professional that wants to, you know, become a great leader? They have no other choice than to put in the time, and there's no secret sauce other than just you don't know what you don't know. You want to be authentic, but over time, you learn and you learn and you learn, and you'll figure out what it is that you need but you know the the advice is just to learn because every industry is different every team is different every business is different so find the jeffs of the world let them teach you what to do and just be you know the class i don't know it's like the old coaching metaphor be moldable so i don't know if that answers the question but i don't think there's there's not magic bullets i think to be successful other than showing up and being willing and open to whatever someone needs Scott, you've been fantastic. Just like I thought, I admire you a ton. Uh, thank you for uh, participating and uh, sharing your wisdom. Uh, you're very successful and um, I'm happy and grateful that uh, we're friends. Thanks for I'm coming just, on. I'm uh, happy because folks like yourself and leaders like yourself took a chance and met with me for coffee. Well, there you go. Thank you. Have a great rest of the day. Wow, that was a fantastic episode with Scott Havens. I'm I'm proud to call Scott a friend. I met him in his late 20s. I believe he's 36 now. I just love how he, uh, what he's done in a short time period and how he built resilience and grit, getting rejected from 60 to 70 jobs out of college. And then his first job with a selling transportation, a logistical service, knocking on doors in a two-state region, 71,000 companies in that region. And that's how he really learned, I think, sales and relationships and how he built success was he was not doing well and he found ways to network and build relationships and groups that, you know, he felt that, you know, weren't getting supported like unemployed people. So he would meet with unemployed people and then, you know, help them connect with others that would help them get jobs and women in business. So, you know, when he graduated, it was like, 2008 2009 so just fantastic i just uh i think he's brilliant um joe what were your takeaways from the episode you know what i like to think about is that scott if i can say this delicately scott is probably not your best student that you ever interviewed right um he found out late in life he's dyslexic he crammed a three-year degree into five years he um, obviously drank his way through high school and through college and set up this bartending staffing service. You know, that's not that's not your academically challenged business venture, if you will. 
But he turns out later in life as being wildly successful in what he does in business, in spite of the moderate success, if any, that he had when he was in college. So I think that the story behind that, and I can say this as a former school teacher, that you know, the, the story that he has is that your school experience is not necessarily indicative or predictive of the success that you're going to have in business. Uh, I know some people that have been valedictorians in their class that are barely moderately successful in business. And then some people like Scott that didn't worry about what he could get out of college. He just wanted to get out of college and uh, ends up being wildly successful in business. So when you're hiring, make sure that you're looking at things other than just their college experience or their GPA or something like that. There are intangibles that are better predictors of success in business than what your college experience would be. Yeah, as well as the uh, two references to um, one Wayne's World 2 with Chris Farley and uh, Rami and Michelle's uh, high school reunion. So that that made it an interesting episode. So uh, based on Scott's, uh, what he shared, any uh, leadership tips that you want to impart on the audience? Yeah, you know, I'm always reminded of the quote from the great Dwight Schrute when he said, when I'm deciding something to do, I always think, would a stupid person do that? If the answer is yes, I do not do that thing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.